This is Terry Waldo. The program is This is Ragtime, and this is number 18 in our series. And I'm sorry today that it has been so long since we've talked. I haven't done a podcast in I don't know how long. I've been extremely busy since the last time we talked. We've recorded material for over two albums. We've been playing in several clubs, including the Zinc Bar every Wednesday, and Arthur's Tavern, which is an old Greenwich Village club that used to have Dixieland in days gone by, and they were shut down for the pandemic and reopened again. And we were the first band they had when they reopened. We've been playing there every Thursday night at 10 o'clock. So if any of you get to New York and want to catch us, those two places are a good place to start. That is the Zinc Bar on Wednesdays from 8 to 11, and Arthur's Tavern on Thursdays from 10 to 12.30. Those are both in the village. So today... I'm going to do a tribute to Roy Tate, who was the trumpet player with my band Waldo's Gut Bucket Syncopators, and we haven't really done a tribute to him, although he was so central to the sound of that band. Before we do that, we're going to play a cut from not one of my albums, but one of the albums that Turtle Bay Records is putting out, and that is Scott Ason's great operation, Turtle Bay, that is putting out traditional jazz records. He's got, oh, I don't know how many, maybe 10 albums that he's working on, but I'm going to play you a cut from the second album that they put out. Our album uh, with Tatiana, I Double Dairy, was the first numbered one. And this album features Sweet Meg and Ricky Alexander. The album is called I'm In Love Again. This came out in 2020. It has a lot of the great people that I've enjoyed working with. Sweet Meg is on vocals. Mike Davis is on trumpet and arrangements. Ricky Alexander is the leader. He plays tenor sax, soprano sax, and clarinet. And Rob Edwards is on trombone. Jaron Paxton playing banjo and guitar on this album. Dalton Reidenhauer is on piano. Rob Adkins on bass. Kevin Dorn is on drums. And this is the second cut from that album. And one of my favorite tunes, Foolin' Myself. Here we go.
I tip my head and say, How do you do, you fool? You're throwing your life away. I may act gay, I may be proud, but but every time I see you in the crowd, I may pretend, but. That was Foolin' Myself from Sweet Meg and Ricky Alexander's album, I'm In Love Again. And that's, of course, the first name in trad jazz, Turtle Bay Records, that put that out. And now we're going to play some cuts by Waldo's Gut Bucket Syncopators from various years, featuring our great trumpet player, Roy Tate. And there has never been anybody like Roy that I know of. Roy was the last of what you might call the freak trumpet players. And those were the guys who played kind of smeary and used a lot of mutes, kind of did a lot of talking stuff with those mutes. And Roy was really the best at doing that kind of thing. So let's start off with a cut from our album, Waldo's Gut Bucket Syncopators Presents. This was recorded in 1986, and this is called Down in Honky Tonk Town. This is a number written by Chris Smith, who composed a lot of music around the teens. He always wrote these great verses. The chord changes in them are just wonderful, so you'll notice that in Down in Honky Tonk Town. Also, I want you to notice the way Roy Tate plays chase choruses with Jim Snyder, the wonderful trombone player on these. Here it is, Down in Honky Tonk Town.
that was Down in Honky Tonk Town with Waldo's Gut Bucket Syncopators featuring Roy Tate on trumpet, Frank Powers was on clarinet, Jim Snyder on trombone, Rod McDonald played banjo and guitar, Hal Smith was on drums, Louise Anderson on tuba, and of course I played piano on that one. The Gut Bucket Syncopators was put together all sometime around 1968, maybe. 69, we started making some records. Roy Tate was from Cincinnati. He had previously played in Queen City Band, and then I first heard him playing with Gene Mayle's Dixieland Rhythm Kings. I heard Roy live, and then I started bringing him to Columbus for various events, along with Frank Powers and some of the people who had been playing in Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio. And after we made our first record in 1969, and then another one in 1971, we continued to make records throughout the 70s. Here's another cut from that same album, Waldo's Gut Bucket Syncopators Presents, made in 1981 or so. This is a tune that I first heard Clarence Williams play called Bozo, and it's a real unique arrangement. We just bring one instrument in at a time and then finally bring the whole band in to close it. Here it is, Bozo. was Bozo, featuring Roy Tate on trumpet. About 1979, we started playing during the summers at the St. Louis Ragtime Festival, which was a magnificent event that was held on the Goldenrod Showboat in St. Louis every year. They had the best trad jazz bands in the country, 
the Salty Dogs from Chicago. Turk Murphy's jazz band was there almost every year. We played several years down there, and after playing the first year, the band sounded so great after playing a week, you know, every night, that we decided to do a recording right on the showboat. So this is done on the Goldenrod showboat after hours. I think we started about 2 o'clock in the morning, played till about 5 o'clock. And Roy Tate was in about as good a shape as he was ever. And he had to practice hours and hours and hours to get in shape to be able to do this freaky kind of stuff that he played. But he was in great shape after a a week, and the, the whole band was. So here's one of the tunes that we recorded that night or early morning. This is called When Rastus Plays His Old Kazoo. Thank you. 
This place is Old Kazoo, featuring the great Roy Tate on trumpet, as well as the other gut-bucket syncopators of the time. And that band also featured Eddie Davis playing banjo, Louise Anderson on tuba, Frank Powers on clarinet, Hal Smith was playing drums with us, Jim Snyder on trombone, and yours truly on piano. The last time we got the Gut Bucket Syncopators together for a recording session was December 9th through the 11th in 1996, and we recorded an unusual collection of music on that date. I had always thought that the song One, which came from a chorus line by Marvin Hamlish, would have been a great number as played by Lou Waters, you know, as a two-beat thing. So we recorded that, and it came out pretty good. Roy plays a really unusual kind of a solo. Notice in contrast to Jim Snyder's trombone solo, Jim Snyder just plays the melody, really solid. And Roy is all around it and playing some very modern-sounding kinds of things behind it. So here is one from a chorus line.
That was one from A Chorus Line by Marvin Hamlish, as played by Waldo's Gut Bucket Syncopators. The final cut I'd like to play for you today, featuring Roy Tate, was from an album we did in 1981 called Vamp Till Ready. And this was a really hot version of a tune that King Oliver introduced, and it's called Wah Wah Wah. So here we go to finish up our tribute to Roy Tate with Wah Wah Wah. Wah, 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 featuring Roy Tate and Waldo's Gut Bucket Syncopators. To finish out our program today, we're going to feature one of my programs from NPR, my radio broadcast in 1972 called This Is Ragtime. And this is program number 18 from that series. Hope you enjoy it. This is Ragtime. I'm Terry Waldo, and today we'll be hearing the popular music of the turn of the century as we listen to the ragtime of Tin Pan Alley. We're currently witnessing a revival of interest in ragtime as composed by such great writers as Scott Joplin and Eubie Blake, but during what we call the ragtime era from 1895 to around 1917, the kind of ragtime that was actually popular was generally not the classic ragtime of Joplin or the stomping stride piano of Eubie Blake. It was a massive output of rags and rag songs that were cranked out by a group of writers in the commercial music business known as Tin Pan Alley. 
David Jason, a fine pianist and ragtime scholar from New York, has done a great deal of research on this subject, and we asked him to describe Tin Pan Alley for us. The music publishers who published commercial tunes, they were printers, and then they went out and sold their music, were all lined up on 28th Street. That's where they were congregated eventually in, in the uh, turn of the century, about 1910 or so, in New York. No, 1900. From 1900 to about 1915, they were on 28th Street between Broadway and 6th Avenue. Tin Pan Alley was not a word coined by uh, Stark. No, Monroe Rosenfeld was given credit for it. Monroe Rosenfeld was a lyricist, a gambler, uh, and a newspaper, sometimes newspaper man when he needed enough money to go to the races. Uh, and he is credited in one story uh, in the 1890s uh, when he was walking down 28th Street uh, in this block, and they were all row houses. Um, each publisher had their own building, their own brownstone building of three or four stories, and the ground floor was their retail shop. You climb up the stairs on the first level, the first floor, were divided into partitions on each side of the hallway were little cubicles, and they had a little upright piano, and they had one stool. The stool, or chair, uh, was for the lyricist, and the piano was for the pianist. And they would be pounding out their tunes on order. If you were a vaudevillian and you needed some material, you'd go up to one of the publishers, either Whitmarks or Remix or somebody like that. They were all in these same brownstones, identical. Uh, and you'd go in and say, what have you got for me? And if you were a lo you sang love songs or you sang comic numbers or whatever you did, they would trot out what they had. And if they had nothing that you liked, you would then be closeted with a, a, a team, a songwriter, uh, and a composer, and a lyricist. And they would create something on the spot for you in their little cubbyhole. And then they taught it to you until you memorized it. And then you went out. And then you used that material. And that's how uh, Tin Pan Alley worked. And so you had a, up and down the street, both sides of the street, with the windows open and these pianos jangling. And of course, they're the same kind of pianos you find in, in bars today and wherever you play, out of tune and broken down. And so it sounded to him like tin pans, and he was a, a journalist and had a clever phrase, and, and so he used that in one of his articles when he referred to that uh, section and when he was talking about the publishers of uh, the turn of the century. And that's uh, one of the stories that has been handed down, and it seems logical. It was this sort of song merchandising that Scott Joplin and his publisher John Stark were up against when they hit New York. It was small wonder then that Joplin became increasingly despondent and ever suspicious that the song sellers were stealing his material. Stark finally tired of the cutthroat competition and returned to St. Louis in 1910. This was the height of the ragtime fad. Using mass merchandising techniques, the big publishers were showering an endless number of largely watered-down ragtime on the American public. Did you ever hear about the railroad drag? Toot, 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 it's a joyful drag. See the train a-going around the curve. Oh, my, feel that engine swerve. Engineers are humming a peculiar strain. Now in your heart you get a pain. All the people on the train have caught the drag. Now everybody's humming that railroad drag. Thank you. 
we must say that Tin Pan Alley was not all bad, as it did produce some fine writers and compositions. Max Morath has been performing the early popular songs of Tin Pan Alley for years, and recently has had a successful Broadway show called The Turn of the Century, and this features a great deal of the music from Tin Pan Alley. Hun, 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 can't you hear? Music, music, music clear. Ain't that funny strain going to your brain like a bottle of wine? Fine! Hun, 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 take a chance. One, 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 one little dance. Can't you see them all swaying up the hall? Let's be getting in line. Cause everybody's doing it, doing it, doing it. Everybody's doing it, doing it, doing what? See that ragtime couple over there? Watch them throw their shoulders in the air. Hear them holler, honey, I declare. It's a bear, it's a bear, it's a bear. Where? Everybody's doing it, doing it, doing it. Everybody's doing it, doing it, doing what? Ain't that music touching your heart? Hear that trombone busting apart? Come, 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 let us start. Cause everybody's doing it now. Play it, boys! It's a big mistake to expect massive quality or to expect anything that's created in mass to be uniformly of high quality. It never is. And uh, Tin Pan Alley, which is simply an expression to describe this fantastically booming music business that started about 1895 and has been with us ever since was the merchandising of mass music pop the beginnings of pop fantastic thing in itself you know we've lost sight of the fact already and it's less than a hundred years that the common man took over the art particularly music he got access he got in the driver's seat as to the good, I think, the fact is that 99% of all the output of Tin Pan Alley, or any time you want to check, including last year or this year, 99% of it is doggerel, and that isn't any surprise. I mean, and it isn't a big put-down for that matter. <laughs> Even, you know, what are supposedly called the serious arts are 99% ephemeral, too. I don't believe in looking for bad guys, you know? I don't think you can always say that it was the bad guys who kept the good guys from succeeding. I really don't believe that. Uh, Scott Joplin, we have him. He published. He was there. He had a tragic life. He was a loser. He was beaten. But he published and he wrote. Um, Jerome Kern came up through it. Irving Berlin survived. These are great talents. George Gershwin. If, if, if Tin Pan Alley destroyed the creativity, how come those guys emerged? How come Richard Rogers came through? How come Larry Hart did? How come Hammerstein did? Here's a great old gem that Max has turned up called, If You Don't Have Any Money, Don't You Bother Coming Around. is bad, the worst that I've had, seems to me I'm working awful hard, nothing I do makes me a suit, I've been losing money by the yard, I went out to tell my Isabel that I was broke and didn't have a red, when I told her that, she got my hat, showed me to the door and then she said, now if you don't have any money don't you bother coming out, how you went broke is a story I don't want to hear about. Now, if you're gonna call me honeybee, you better have some do-re-mi. That's what you can't ever call on your baby without. Now, if you don't have any money, don't you bother coming around. 
the Tin Pan Alley rag songs do reflect the generally joyous and naive mood of the turn of the century America, a time free of the worries of overpopulation and pollution, and a world not yet shaken by a world war. Americans still believed they were the chosen leaders of the world, and much of the sheet music from Tin Pan Alley certainly reflects this attitude. One such rag from 1913 by Irving Berlin, who incidentally was probably the greatest of the Tin Pan Alley writers, was called that international rag. The cover features a parade of men of all colors and nationalities, all following Uncle Sam and the American flag. International Rag, played by Albert White and the Gaslight Orchestra. As we've talked about on a previous program, much of the material published by Tin Pan Alley contained very offensive Negro stereotypes. I have a tune that provides an interesting example of that sort of thing. This is a number that Rudy Blesch in his book They All Played Ragtime called one of the few very good rags to come directly out of Tin Pan Alley. This is The Whitewash Man by Gene Schwartz. First, we'll hear a part of the early cylinder recording that came out in 1909. Then we'll compare that with a recording made of the tune as a piano rag, played by Ralph Sutton. I am the man that's in the summer season. No use for me when 
the snow and the ice and freezing, but in the spring, when the birds start a humming, that's the time that you should just send for me. Oh, Moses! And when the old walls are starting up peeling and the rain, it comes in through the cracks in the ceiling, that's the time that the folks get a very shaky feeling and they're all a telephone for me. I'm the whitewash man. I'm the whitewash man. Wherever I go in my lily white clothes, most everyone knows I'm whitewashing most, for I'm the whitewash man. The real old whitewash man. If there's something to do, I'd be thankful to you. Most the whitewash man. There's a whole group of Tin Pan Alley writers who also wrote some fine rags. One of these is Percy Winrick. He wrote dozens of what you might call catchy rags. And these generally contain very simple chord structures, but the kind of melody you could whistle. Here's one of his rags called Silver Bell, an Indian intermezzo. This is played for us by the Los Angeles group led by Professor David Bourne, the Dawn of the Century Ragtime Orchestra.
Silver Bell, an Indian intermezzo. This was incidentally one of a series of such tunes about pretty Indian maids. Hiawatha, A Summer Idol was another, and of course the tune we still remember today, Red Wing. It ought to be pretty clear by now that the bandwagon approach, which is very popular today, was also very much in evidence in the ragtime era. It was a string of overworked images, the Negro stereotypes, the Indian maids, mother or mammy, and countless songs about the dear old South. And there was a large number of songs about the various rivers and boats that sailed them. Waiting for the Robert E. Lee was one. And another we're going to hear right now, which was written by a very fine and prolific ragtime composer, Charles L. Johnson. This is Sailing Down the Chesapeake Bay, played for us by the St. Louis Ragtimers. This is Ragtime was produced, written, and narrated by Terry Waldo and directed by Jeff Mill. Audio engineer, Bob Robinson. This program was produced at the Ohio University Telecommunications Center with funds provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is NPR, National Public Radio.